evening, I'm Matthew Frost and welcome to our second episode of Fully Scored Live. We hope that you enjoyed our first episode live uh, two weeks ago. If you uh, haven't seen it yet, just scroll a little bit down the music editorial Facebook page and you'll be able to see that. But first of all, tonight we've got two very special guests who I'm really looking forward to talking to joining us. Now, if you do have any questions throughout this whole episode, please feel free to pop those in the comments and we'll have a section at the end where we try to answer as many of those as possible. So get thinking and get typing. And also, if you haven't listened to our podcast episodes, there are five episodes now available on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast. They're free to listen to and we've had some excellent guests and excellent analyses on those. So do check them out. There are links again all over the Music Editorial Facebook page. Now, later in this podcast, we are joined by Darren Shaw, who's going to be talking to us about perhaps one of the most popular pieces that's been published by the Salvation Army this decade, Guardian of My Soul. So we look forward to welcoming him later. But before that, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome again another international guest. That is John Lamb, joining us all the way from Canada. So good evening, John. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Fantastic. Not too bad, thank you. So let's get the interview started. First of all, could you tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised? I was raised in a small city uh, about uh, two and a half hours north of Toronto, Ontario. It's a little place called Owen Sound, Ontario, Canada. Great. And where do you live now? I live uh, three hours from where I was born, and that is London, Ontario, the birthplace of the Salvation Army in Canada. Fantastic. Now, what's the best thing, in your opinion, about living in Canada? Other than the fact that nobody really knows who we are as a people, uh, I think uh, the best things about it is we're a small population with a big, beautiful backyard, and we have a thing called Tim Hortons Coffee. It's our national addiction next to the game of hockey. Absolutely. One's just opened up in Birmingham, and I had to say the French vanilla coffee. Wonderful, wonderful Excellent. stuff. <laughs> we're not sponsored by Tim Hortons, though. <laughs> okay, so moving on, have you always been part of the Salvation Army? No, I grew up in the Anglican Church, um, first 10 or 11 years of my life, um, and then, uh, you know, whereas uh, I, I'm sure I wasn't the most enthusiastic churchgoer, um, but those 10 or 11 years made a big impression on me, but I was then recruited to the Salvation Army because of a, a Salvationist that uh, my dad worked with. And there was a general lack of uh, programming and Sunday school at the Anglican Church. And so they, they built a new court at the bottom of my street. I walked in and the rest is history. Fantastic. And now uh, for me, uh, someone that's grown up and spent my whole life in the Salvation Army, um, the uniform and the pseudo-militaristic sort of traditions seem quite normal. But for someone coming from the outside, uh, what, did this, what did you think about it? Did it ever seem strange to you? Uh, I don't think it did. Um, I think my my parents uh, raised me to appreciate the military and uh, the war was not uh, too distant in their minds. And so, um, and the Salvation Army was very present in Owen Sound. And I remember seeing my first Salvation Army band in that town uh, at, uh, at a park playing an open air service. And I remember asking my mom, what is that? And then years later, uh, when I knew a little bit more, um, I thought it was a unique thing, 
that a church would use that um, that particular uh, way of, of uh, mobilizing their faith. And um, so it wasn't strange to me at all. And I, I found it quite a, um, a novel idea. Didn't intimidate me at all. Right. Fantastic. So could you tell us about one particular defining moment of your faith? That would be um, National Music Camp uh, 1982. Um, it was uh, the first music camp I ever went to. I, I chose not to go to divisional camps. Um, I like to work in the summer and I was reaching that age where I, you know, some doubts were setting in if I'd stay in the church or in the army. And uh, my core officer's son said it'd be a great place to, how could we say this, be a great place to socialize. And, uh, you know, bring your guitar. You'll have to bring a trombone because they'll make you play in a band. And uh, I was not ready uh, for the spiritual impact. Um, probably uh, augmented by just knowing that the Salvation Army was a much bigger thing than, than what it was in my hometown. Meeting like-minded people from across the country and playing in a full complement band with uh, a, a much um, deeper repertoire. Uh, and... Uh, all of that led to um, the experience of playing Tom Rives' I Know a Fount, and it just, the way our band leader uh, explained the words and, uh, and the scripture behind it and uh, tied it in with what I, I consider is some of our best music in the, in the repertoire, uh, that was a, a spiritual moment for me that uh, it was a landmark in, in my journey for sure. Fantastic. Brilliant music. Now, I'm interested to know, uh, were you uh, trained as a musician through the Salvation Army or were you learning to play uh, and become a musician before? Uh, it was never really my goal to be a musician. I was uh, taking piano lessons as a kid under protest. Didn't want to be like my sisters, so I quit. Um, and I probably, yeah, I joined the Salvation Army. Um, and you know what it's like. You walk into a Salvation Army building and you're a part of every activity that there is. So here's a trombone. And so because of that, I chose trombone in my um, uh, grade, in my seventh grade uh, high, uh, band. And uh, no great enthusiasm for it at the time, but you know, I could sense I was part of a community uh, and with, with caring people. And that's, that's where the journey started. I think it was after my, my uh, experience at National that I, I you know, um, found that I had a greater love for music than I knew. And that's when my, my formal education took off in a more serious way. So you mentioned that one of your defining moments in your faith was at the National Music Camp um, through music. How does music continue to enrich your faith now? I think music... Um, it, it allows me to express my faith. It allows me to witness. Um, I don't consider myself uh, an accomplished or brilliant musician in any way, but I, I do have the gift of uh, uh, not only playing it, but it affects me and it feeds my soul. So um, I feel privileged that I can take that which moves me and that which I enjoy, uh, whether it's conducting or playing uh, my trombone or the piano, uh, I think it's a real privilege to be able to use that craft that God has given you to whatever level uh, to, uh, to proclaim the gospel. Uh, and really within, I think, a, a unique context of a global Salvation Army, we get to do that worldwide. And I don't take that for granted. So you're now the bandmaster at London Sistel, but also you're the bandmaster of the 
Canadian staff band and have been since 2008. Now, that's quite a large chunk of time. But have you got a particular highlight that you can think of uh, from your time as the conductor of the Canadian staff band? That would fall into perhaps a category of unfair questions, but uh, I'll try to answer it. Maybe a part A and part B. Let's talk about the visible things and the landmark things, the large gatherings, ISB 120, uh, the Western Territory celebrated its 10th anniversary. All the bands came together uh, for that. And then last year, the, the CSB 50 celebrations. Uh, you just can't ignore those monumental times where, where you are together with so many like-minded people at the staff band level. And uh, the Holy Spirit always shows up. And, and those are unforgettable moments. But equally important to me is, I think, the invisible things where, you know, a high school student that you've been teaching who, especially since we've had social media, they, they follow what the teacher does online if they can, which sounds weird in a way, but uh, I've had that um, experience where a student of mine starts following what the Salvation Army band does, whether it's the core band or the Canadian staff band, and a moment comes along where they say, tell me more about the Salvation Army and tell me more about your faith, uh, culminating in, can I come to your church? I think that that has to be a highlight for me just as much as the big gatherings. Inspiring to hear. Fantastic stuff. Um, and before you were the bandmaster of the band, you were the bass trombonist. I wonder how many yeah. bass trombonists do make it to bandmaster. Uh, be interesting to do a poll there. <laughs> should, be, should be many more of those, I think. Just you know, the, the right kind of people. No, I'm just kidding. I'll stop right there. Uh, what was the question? Oh, sorry, I didn't quite What, get to what was that like? But the question was going to be, have you got any highlights from your time as a player? Um, playing bass trombone in the Canadian staff band was kind of a nice night off from leadership when I took over London's little band, because that was a lot of pressure at a young age. Uh, so it was, I was able to hang on to, to a few more years of playing and obviously guest conductors, guest soloists, uh, exciting tours around the world, all of that. If I had to boil it down to one of my favorite performances, it was a time we were, um, uh, we had Stephen Mead as the guest soloist and he conducted Shine as the Light. And I remember after that one was over, it was like that, that was pretty cool performance. And, uh, but there, there would be a long list of those. So tough question to answer. Well, I do, we have a very hard caliber of guests on this podcast. So I like to ask very challenging questions. And my next question is uh, no exception to that. If you had to summarise the mission of the Canadian staff band in one sentence, what would it be? Uh, I think to bring the gospel through personal witness and music anywhere, any way, any how it takes, using high performance and being low maintenance. Very good. Very, very good. Made that look easy. <laughs> so again, another perhaps a challenging question. Perhaps not. Looking forward, where do you see the Chicago, um, not Chicago, Canadian staff band in 10 years' time? Maybe we'll have a follow-up question seeing where you think the Chicago staff band can be as well. I'm a big fan of the Chicago staff band. I think they'll probably still be located somewhere near Chicago in the Midwest. <laughs> um, but the CSB in 10 years' time, that's hard to say, um, and especially in light of what we're going through right now. Uh, with the, the pandemic, um, I'm in several conversations with many of my colleagues, staff bandmasters, and the players in the band. Um, we all hope that we will return to 
something that looks like what we what we were three four months ago. But we all know that that's that's going to be a new normal. And so the question is, you know, what do we what do we do now? I don't think we're on a hiatus. I think that we need to be present in people's lives and and be ministers of the gospel just as much now in the digital realm and find out different ways of doing that and everything will be a novelty. And so you go on to the next thing, but in 10 years time, I would like to think that we're still um, doing what we do now. Um, uh, I would hope that we are continuing to evolve as genres of music and evolve as well, that we never just get stuck in the past. We, we honor what was great about the past. We, we live in the present and, and we, we look to the future using any genre of music or any medium, whether it be digital or the open air or what the new concert halls will look like when this is all over. Uh, and that we'll never lose sight of the fact that our personal witness and who we are as staff bandsmen and as, as members of our core sections um, is equally as important as how we play our instrument. Um, because people are not only watching us perform, they're watching how we live. And I think that uh, the staff band, um, I think we've been leaders in, in setting that example in our territory. And we're just as much about visiting the smallest town as we are about things on the world stage. And that would be my vision for 10 years down the road. And that's my answer to that question. Great. A very exciting vision to happen. Wish you all the best with that in the future. Um, so in your day-to-day life, you're an educator in a high school. Would you yes. say that work complements or contrasts your position as the CSB bandmaster? There are definite contrasts to it when you hang around in, in a high school and then you're away with Salvationists all weekend. Um, two different worlds to live in, but it mainly complements. And I think, um, you know, I love being a high school uh, teacher uh, because I love music. I love young people and I love their enthusiasm. And it seems very natural to me to be able to use my craft in, in both, um, both venues. And I think the opportunity it gives uh, me is to live in, in the real world, knowing what youth are talking about, knowing what burdens they carry, knowing what they want Um and being able to uh, inform um, my colleagues in the Salvation Army about, you know, youth of our time and, you know, be able to, to bridge that gap if there is one. Sometimes we think that children want these new programs and that'll bring them to our church. And I come back with children, just, they just want your time. And if music is how you spend your time with them or sports is, at the end of the day, they still just want your time. And that's given me a crystal clear view of that. And uh, so, yeah, it definitely complements it. And, and again, without me coming in, preaching the gospel by word, they can just, I can live to the best of my ability on a daily basis. I can live a Christ-like life in front of them. And, uh, and the music is, is, is at the center of both worlds. Whole life discipleship in action there. So... Yeah. Um, often as Salvationist musicians, we like to reminisce. So I'm going to ask you to reminisce a little bit now. Is okay. there a particular person that you can think that in- has inspired you on your journey um, becoming and being a Salvationist musician? Is there uh, one or two people that you think would have particularly um, inspired you and engaged with you? Yeah, there's a there's a list. I'm um, 
I'm a product of my mentors. There's nothing original about what I do. I've had a very fortunate, blessed life. Um, my, my first bandmaster, uh, senior bandmaster in Owen Sound, he was a giant in our community. He literally uh, left uh, a job in the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, band branch to come back to his hometown. And he, he, he recruited a lot of um, musicians from the UK uh, to not just play in the band, but to be a YPSM or to be a, a course sergeant major. And, and he was a giant in my life. And uh, he taught me some pretty good lessons. And uh, not only about music, I remember him saying once to me, well, you're becoming a decent little trombone player, John. When you learn about commitment, you might be of use to us here. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Um, and he never gave up on me. And I remember having to return to him at a time in my life when things were a little bit rough. He just looked at me with, you know, this wisdom and said, you're not going to let this bump in the road get in the way of what God's plan is for you, are you, John? And that meant everything to me at the time. I think of Bram Gregson, uh, my bandmaster in London, just a fire and brimstone band leader, uh, taught me a lot about the hard lessons of leadership and prepared me very, very well uh, for the... Um, for the lesser seen side of leadership, dealing with people, dealing with the organization and uh, coping with the stress. And, and just at the same time, he never lost his passion for music and he took an interest in me. Um, and again, you know, people like Brian Burdett and uh, an educator of mine, Jim White uh, at, at University of Western Ontario. So I've had several people and they all offered different, different angles of uh, what ended up being uh, my life's journey in leadership and in music. Brilliant. So you mentioned earlier about the National Music Camp in Canada having such a profound impact on your yep. life. So leading to my next question, uh, you're really heavily involved with this uh, nowadays. How do you try and give the young people the same experience and impact that that week had for you back then, today? I think I, I'm still so much in touch with what happened there for me. And um, everybody who's been through that experience recognizes that the Jackson's Point National School of Music, or now it's Territorial Music uh, School, it, it's holy ground. Um, I think you have to just um, trust that the Holy Spirit's going to show up and let that inspire you to choose a repertoire that has some real depth and potential to draw uh, the students in. And, and you bring the scripture and, you know, our, uh, the songbook, which is our sung theology, into that as well. And you not only read the words to them, you live that in front of them during that crucible that you're in where you spend eight days together, uh, whatever it is. Uh, but mainly you get out of the way of the Holy Spirit and, and, and let him do his thing. And, um, and that's what I do when I lead groups. I've taught leadership there and I just... That is nothing but sharing in honesty, the practical and the, the hard and soft side of leadership, both skills in each category and, and share experiences and offer to mentor them way beyond the, the limits of the, the week that we have together. That's been my strategy. And uh, I think, you know, from feedback, I get that the Lord has used me in, in the best way he could. Uh, and I just trust him in that every time I go. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you for your honesty and openness with that answer. So before we move on to our quirky quickfire section, I've got two more questions to you. Now, the okay. first one, have you got a favourite Salvation Army band or, or vocal composer? That's just not a fair question, but I'll have to answer it anyway. So I could come back at you and say living or dead, 
uh, old or young, new on the epic pieces, devotional pieces. But I think I would have to, for the personal level, it would have to be Tom Rive. For musical, somewhere between RSA and uh, Dean Goffin. And now uh, making it even trickier and narrowing it down further. Have you got a favorite Salvation Army piece from the repertoire? Epic piece, March, devotional piece again, same rules apply, but let's let's go for epic piece. And I, I'd have to say Daystar, RSA. Wonderful, wonderful piece. So now uh, we come on to a section uh, that I like to call quirky quickfire. Now I've got some questions for you that I guarantee no one else would probably ever ask you before. Some are slightly more normal. Somewhere a little bit off the wall. So, um, of course, yourself being Canadian, uh, it'd be very remiss of me not to play on these uh, stereotypes. So my first question for you is maple syrup, yay or nay? Oh, yay. What's your favourite way to have coffee? Black. OK, I was expecting to say in a mug, but uh, we'll move on. Um, well, where... that applies too. <laughs> Fantastic. So... Where would you say is the most spectacular landscape in Canada? That is tough. Um, East Coast, West Coast, Newfoundland, BC. It's it's also diverse, and that you, that's an unanswerable question. Great, I love a good un unanswerable question. <laughs> um, so, what's your favourite sport? College football. Okay. Followed closely by baseball. And have you got a particular favourite college football team? University of Michigan. Great. Um, why, why is that? Because uh, I went to that school. Oh. And I'm, I remain very closely connected. And it's all that aside, if you've ever been to a, a University of Michigan football game with 115,000 people, it's it's nothing like the rollicking soccer crowds in, in Europe, but it's uh, it's an event complete with a 350-piece marching band uh, and, you know, an Air Force flyover, and somewhere in there they toss around a football as well. It's just a great all-around day-long experience that you have to you have to go to sometime. I'll take you. I can get you tickets. Fantastic. You could teach me about... I know nothing about football anyway, so might have to have a lesson on it beforehand. You don't even need to. You don't even need to know a thing about it. As long as I'm cheering the right side. That normally helps. <laughs> so my next question. Have you got a favourite CD or cassette or record of all time? Ooh, that's... That would be a tough one. So let me say um, a Los Angeles uh, Philharmonic 1983 recording of Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring and Samuel Barber's Adagio. One of the cleanest, loveliest performances of those uh, pieces ever. That would be near the top of my list. I don't know if it'd be the top, but that's, a, that's the answer I can give you in such short notice. Changes every day, doesn't it, sometimes? <laughs> it does. So if you were stuck on a desert island and you could take three items, what would they be? Hmm. Um, totally alone and not able to bring my significant other and, and my lovely wife, Sarah. I, if I'm totally marooned, I would want a coffee maker, fully, fully supplied. 
Uh, I'd want my trombone or my piano. And if we're allowed animals, I'd want my bulldog, who is snoring very loudly right here by my desk right now. Fantastic. I'll, I'll allow you to have those three. Uh... <laughs> so um, if you could take credit for writing one book from the whole of history, what book would it be? Uh, a, a well-known book? That's up to you. That already exists or one that I've got in my mind? One that already exists. One that already exists, I'd have to say um, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Who's your favourite biblical character? Moses. Okay, have you got a favourite smell? Hmm. Also very tough. Let's go with uh, having been there on many occasions to the Great American Brass Band Festival. When you get off the bus at two o'clock in the morning in one of the most humid areas of the States in Kentucky, it's the smell of the juniper trees in June. Very nice. Very specific. Excellent. Um, now I've got four more questions for you. If you had to describe your ideal holiday in one word, what would it be? Uh, escaping um, the, the real world as we know it, or the busyness of it, and disappearing into the mountains of Vermont, which I often do. Right, a little bit more than one word, that, but, but I'll allow Sorry. it. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't listening. I apologize to all the viewers. Well, it's okay. We won't sack you yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, three more questions. Would you rather skydive or bungee? Bungee. What's your favourite variety of tree? Uh, red maple. Okay, very, very predictable there. <laughs> and my final question. Using okay. nothing but a facial expression, could you describe the taste of your favourite meal? Excellent. Very good. Have you ever considered a career in drama? Um, I did a lot of drama in high school and I did tour with Les Miserables, but not as a character, I, as a bass trombone player. But I felt I could have played the role of Javert. I, I memorized all of his solos and lines. But do you want to give us one of the solos now? Or? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Certainly a quick fire question, that. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much, John. It's been a real pleasure to interview you and find uh, out more about your ideas on Salvation Army Banding, what you do day to day, your work with the uh, Canadian Staff Band, and just a bit about yourself. It's been a real pleasure. So if you stick Thanks around, we'll invite well, you back to play Band Masterminds in a little bit. Uh, but now it's a real pleasure to welcome Darren Shaw to the podcast. So hopefully Darren is out. Brilliant. Good to Okay, and we're going to be talking a little bit about um, your piece, Guardian of My Soul. Now, um, if I just get the questions up on my computer so that I'm not ad-libbing, uh, that would be very dangerous. <laughs> but it's great to see you, and I love the background. Fantastic. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, first of all, the reaction to Guardian of My Soul has been quite incredible, really. As I said at the beginning, uh, I would probably say it's been one of the most popularly played Salvation Army published pieces this decade. and yeah. um, I would probably hazard a guess that at least 95% of all UK Salvation Army bands will have played the piece, and it's you know gone all around the world. But perhaps more importantly, it's had a real spiritually profound impact on so many people and their faith. How does that make you feel? 
Well, firstly, it's difficult to grasp um, the bigger picture, really. Uh, I hear stories of where it's being used all over the place, inside and outside of the Salvation Army, um, being played to the royal family, um, being played in prisons, weddings, funerals. I hear all those things. And somehow, somehow I don't, I'm not able to put all that together. What, what I do grasp, though, is the, the personal stories that come my way, the meetings I have when people are talking to me about it. And uh, it's exactly what you drew out there. Really what's important to me is the spiritual impact, um, that profound impact that it's had on, on many people at different stages of their spirituality um, and of their lives. Um, and that, that kind of invokes this sense of sanctified satisfaction in a way, um, but also the main thing is that God always encourages me through these uh, encounters and these stories. There's always such a huge blessing to me to hear that uh, something I, I did in, in my dining room all those years ago um, is, is still reaching people and that God's using it. And that's just incredible. Um, it reminds me of one of the old Gowns and Larson musicals. You know, you're glued to the spot if you like it or not when the Salvation Army band comes down the road. It's that kind of thing. It seems to grab people. And I, I don't know why. It's it's not something I can claim is mine. Um, but that it happens is such a blessing and an encouragement. It's wonderful. Brilliant. So the piece itself, Guardian of My Soul, is based around two different hymns. The first one being your own original composition, I Worship You, Guardian of My Soul, and the, the more classic and traditional tune, Aurelia. First of all, could you tell us about I Worship You and what the inspiration was behind this tune? It's an important tune to me. It's an important song, really. Um, but the melody line comes from, well, it forms part of my origin story, really, as both a, a Christian and a composer. Um, about the age of 12, 13, sort of around those kind of those times. Um, those were the times when I started to real, feel a real connection with God. When I first started really hearing him speaking to me, calling to me. Um, I'd always believed before that. I could, I could never remember a time that I didn't. But this was the time when my connection with God and also my musical development, so spiritual development and musical development dovetailed in that year or so, or those year or two years. And that's when I, I used to sit down at the piano every day and um, fully formed melodies would come out of my fingers almost. And that's where the melody line for Guardian of My Soul came from. It was something that just, it flowed out of me. Um, there, there are other influences on it, I, I guess, that built up to that moment, but it was a, an important early melody for me. And I held on to it for a few years. And then when I was about 20, I was invited to uh, take part in a publishing project. And um, I had to scrabble around in my archives thinking, what have I got? What can I uh, polish up? And that kind of thing. And um, remembered this tune thought, that's going to make a good congregational song. Easy to sing, easy to pick up. Um, so I paired it with some words, a paraphrase of 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 that I put together myself. And essentially that's how the song was born, really. So the published tune that's published, uh, published in the Magnify book um, only had the one verse. However, the tune that you use in the band piece, Guardian of My Soul, uh, has a second verse. Uh, I'd like to ask you what the motivation was behind writing this uh, second additional verse. Well, as I say, the first verse was based on those those scripture verses, so there was the only only the one. Um, but then the feedback I got from 
everyone who liked the song anyway, <laughs> when they when they said to me about the song, they say, we love the song. It's really good, but um, it's too short. And so that played on my mind for quite a while. And I kept writing or trying to write in the second verse, trying to make it a bit longer, trying to make it a bit more worthwhile, people picking up and singing. But I couldn't, I just couldn't find something that fitted. It felt like a, an add-on, just wasn't quite uh, organic. And then I don't know what it was that inspired it, but it must have several years later, 2008, 2009, I suddenly realised, and it seems obvious now, um, if we in the first verse we're saying, I worship you for all you've done for me, Jesus, then surely the follow-on from that is, I'll follow you. Um, the commitment we make to him is not just to say, I'll worship you from a distance and let you get on with it, Jesus, while I applaud from the sidelines. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Um, it's something that you have to participate in, just as you participate in the divine nature, which is another thing that, that Peter writes. Um, so the second verse is really about following and not only following, but along the road to Calvary, which means taking up your own cross, but also the joy of seeing the Saviour's open arms. Um, receiving you in love so that's where that second verse came from great um so the original tune i worship you was published as you said back in the magnified book in i believe 1996 however the arrangement the band piece guardian of my soul was published in 2013 so just over 15 years later yeah what was your inspiration to come back to this tune that you've written uh, was there always something in your heart when you were writing the tune in the first place that you wanted to transcribe it for band? Or uh, was there a sudden event that motiv uh, motivated you to come back to it? Um, there was no plan originally. Um, when I first started writing music, I was very much, a, I saw myself very much as a songwriter. I dabbled in band writing because um, I was a member of a band from very young. Um, and I'd written a few things for my GCSE music as well for band and uh, so, you know, I tried it out here and there, but there, so there was never that intention. But what made me write it for band this time was essentially illness. Um, I'd been ill by the time I wrote it. I'd been ill for six years with ME, debilitating illness, and I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't do any of those things that I was used to doing. And then one day in November 2011, I suddenly had my concentration back. I woke up one morning and I could think clearly and... Um, I could write music again. I could hear it going around my head again for the first time in a long time. Um, <clears throat> so um, I, I, I transcribed something for the bandmaster at South Sea, a friend of mine. We used to sing in the youth chorus together. Or he played drums, actually. He didn't sing. Um, but he asked me, have you still got that piece you wrote based on that youth chorus song we used to sing? Um, and I said, no, I can't find it anywhere. It was written on paper. I haven't got a copy of it. So I wrote, rewrote that from memory and that got me into the, the rhythm of writing for band again. I had that sound in my head and I thought I've got to do some more. But having been ill, I was still weak. So um, I needed something that I knew really, really well. So I could just sit down and write and not have to think too much about it. You know, um, I was kind of working my way into things. So that's why I chose to write for Guardian, you know, Guardian of My Soul into a band piece. That's where it all came from. It just everything came together to lead me to that point, really. So the second tune that you use in the arrangement is a tune, Aurelia, set to the words, Oh Jesus, I have promised. Now I'm sure in many people's minds, they'll always associate this tune with Dean Goffin's The Light of the World. I know it's set to different words, but certainly the tune Aurelia has got a huge connotations there. So perhaps for this reason, some might 
um, stayed away from using this tune because of those connotations and preconceptions that people may have. However, yeah. you've managed to take this melody and merge it with your own more contemporary tune seamlessly, um, and it's, it's worked really, really well. Were you ever he hesitant about matching such a well-known traditional tune with something more contemporary? Well, firstly, thank you for saying it was successful. I mean, that means a lot um, because obviously I was very aware of the iconic status of that melody in a band piece. Um, you know, it, it was the obvious thing to think about when I, when I was thinking about putting it in. Um, but on the other hand, I had no choice. I, I, there was nothing else I could have put in there for, for several reasons. The more I was writing, the more I realised that this was becoming my own story, my own testimony in music that the words of Guardian of My Soul, the direction it took me in, but also the, my history with, oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end, which um, played part in my calling to officership and my ongoing determination to keep following whatever was happening with my, with my uh, illness or my health or whatever. So those two things were there. But also the very fact that, oh, Jesus, I have promised, contains the phrase, thou guardian of my soul. So there were two compelling reasons to, to include that melody in the piece so I kind of had to do it um, but then again I wasn't really afraid because um, to be honest I never intended the piece to be published I was writing it really for my own therapy really um, for something to do while I was recovering so I wasn't really afraid and I guess that might be one of the reasons why I got away with it because <laughs> I wasn't overthinking it um, there are, and we'll look when we look at the score later, there are some things I did deliberately to set it apart from Light of the World. Um, that seemed the sensible thing to do. And there were other stylistic things which made it work better with, with the contemporary style of the piece. But um, overall, I had no choice and I wasn't really afraid. I guess that's the answer. And now a slightly more personal question to you. Uh, has there been a particular performance or piece or a recording that means a lot to you? I'm going to use John's phrase here. It's not a fair question, is it, really? They're, they're all good. I love them all. Um, and that's true because it's good to hear how people interpret what you've written, how they see and, and hear and feel what's on that page. Um, so that's always wonderful. But there are two uh, obvious choices. The, the performance has to be the very first time I heard it played in public, which was uh, Salvation Brass played it in Horsham their weekend. They led there in Horsham in early 2012. Um, they played through it that afternoon and then played it for the evening meeting and I managed to get there and hear that. And not only is it about hearing it performed and hearing what it sounds like in real life, but it is also um, about gauging the reaction in the room. And that's why it was so special to hear the silence afterwards, to feel the atmosphere and to know actually this 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 has touched people and that's very special and to experience for that for, that for the first time so Horsham Salvation Brass um, but as far as the recordings concerned I'd have to choose uh, the I'll Fight DVD from the Congress in 2012 um, I wasn't able to be there and I had no idea that the ISB were going to play it um, in the Albert Hall since I was watching the, the proms as a child I'd always wanted a piece of music of mine to be played there at that venue so it's kind of an ambition but but more than that, I was sat in the, the meeting, the, uh, you know, worship at Celsius on Sunday, um, that Sunday, and my phone was buzzing away in my pocket. It wouldn't shut up. 
Um, thankfully, I had it turned onto the bus, so no one was <laughs> hearing any melodies playing out of my pockets or anything. But all the people that I knew who were at the Congress at the time were, were texting me and sending me videos and audio clips saying, they're playing your piece, they're playing your piece, and telling me um, how it felt to be there when it was being... And that was just wonderful. So, of course, as soon as the DVD was out, I had to watch it. And uh, I guess it's important to me in kind of in a selfish way that it's, it's the Albert Hall, but also it kind of marks where the piece was introduced to a lot of people. And I think that helped to, to give it a life of its own, so to speak. So yeah, I think that would be my recording choice, but as I say, all the others are fantastic. Wonderful. And it's great to hear a bit about the context of the piece. I'm sure many of us have played it, but not realized all the background that's behind it. Uh, just a quick reminder quickly to our listeners. If you do have any questions for Darren or John, uh, do write those in the comment section and we'll have a little chance to answer any of those questions in a bit. Now's your chance if there's any burning things on the tip of your tongue to ask. So now, Darren, I'd like to ask you to just talk us a little bit through the structure of the piece and perhaps pick out a few ideas from the music and explain those to us. Yeah, sure, that'd be good. Um... Okay, so we start um, the introduction. It's quite distinctive, I think, um, with its four-note motif. <clears throat> I've never really asked the cornet player whether they get sick of it by the end of the piece because that's all they play until sort of section C, I think, so the cornets. Um, but we have this four-note motif, which is actually written later. I, I started writing at letter A, where the melody line starts, where I was familiar and comfortable, and I thought, well, let's start where I know and, and go from there. Um, the, the, the four note motif comes later when I'm trying to blend all the bits together of the piece and thinking um, musically, how, could I, how can I stitch it together? So that, that motif really comes because it blends with both of the melodies. It appears in both of the melodies. In fact, that motif ends up in every section. I have checked in every section apart from A section. So it's everywhere during the piece, not just the intro. But it cascades down uh, as, the, as all of the band join in. And uh, it shows one of the, the trademark things that I tend to do a lot in my writing songs and in band is I tend to go between chord one and chord four a lot. I like, it's not quite so direct as going to the dominant all the time, go to the subdominant and then back again, kind of gives an ebb and flow for me. This, this is the way I, I like to work. So we get down to chord four by bar four, but then the euphoniums and the baritones are starting their little duet. And they do this a few times during the, the piece. They duet or they answer, call and answer each other, baritone and euphonium throughout the piece. So here they are um, with their rolling quavers. And uh, where the euphonium's got its F sharps leading us back up, to the, back up to the tonic all the time, it kind of gives us that otherworldly feel. So if you listen to bars four and five, it's almost otherworldly. I think um, I certainly recognize that technique in John Williams and E.T. where he uses that just trying to lead away. He's in chord four, but leading away back up to the, to the, to the, to the tonic. So we're doing that. We're going between one, four and one and four all the way through to letter A with constant movement going on in the euphoniums and baritones, that rolling movement always. And that sort of establishes the piece, I think, as something that flows. It always flows. It always moves. It's never static. It's always moving forwards. Um, and then just before letter A, we have this tiny little decoration in the flugelhorn which actually reappears a couple of times later and gets a little bit longer each time it appears. The flugel plays just before the horns come in with the tune. Um, I've chosen the horns there. Um, I would say because I was a solo horn player when I was growing up, but that's uh, not all. It's because it's smooth and mellow and that's what you want. 
to start the piece. Just smooth and mellow, and let's get into this. It's in the in the key that it's written in. It's in a good, sweet range for the horns. It's not too low. It's not too high. So that's uh, that's where I went with it. And the trombones just join us for a bar there to warm us through in bar 13 just to give a little bit of warmth. That's the first time we hit the dominant chord actually there as well, just as for, for nerds who want to uh, have a look at that. And then very quickly, we're getting on to change already. We're getting towards uh, section B and we're switching to the cornets now. We're getting into the, to the, to the relative minor. Lord, your wounds um, are now my healing. And as the healing comes through that bar, which is the second bar of B, we have this large crescendo to the loudest part of the piece so far. It's for forte healing and I am wholly yours. That's healing leading to wholeness there in those bars. Um, and I just point out here actually that we're using the dynamics and we're using the tenutos and the markings to, to tell the spiritual and emotional story. Um, it's deliberately non rubato this piece for me. The tempo needs to stay constant throughout until we get later on where it speeds up a little bit. And we're not telling the story emotionally or spiritually with rubato. We're not pulling it around. We're letting the dynamics speak strong and then quiet again. Um, so that's the first example of that happening there. We're leading into, you know, my name and where I'm going. Guardian of my soul. The motif comes back as we go into letter C. Um, and then, then I introduce these little semi-quaver things, the euphoniums and the baritones, where they call and answer. Um, that's for a bit of intensity and texture, really. We've been really smooth so far. Um, so there's something just to change it up for the listener, but also to add that kind of expectation. What's next? Because in my story, I'm saying, um, your wounds are now my healing. I was getting better. I was being healed, but my illness had led me out of officership. I'd had to leave my vocation behind because I was too ill to, to, to keep it going. So now I'm asking the question, I'm starting to say, oh, okay, I'm being healed, but what next? What's coming next? So that intensity, that bubbling away is kind of unsettling. It's sort of, what's coming next, Lord? And then we, we start to hit that decoration again, the dee da 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 and it's a bit longer than the horns now, and they're leading into the key change. We're getting louder and louder until now. This is double 40 now, the loudest part yet. And um, I wanted to change key here because I knew that by the end I wanted the the final melody, the, the second verse of Guardian of My Soul to be soaring above where it was before, much higher. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I also needed Aurelia to be set where it is with, with, the, uh, with the coordinates starting on the F sharp there in, in, in D major. Um, I needed that key in time for Aurelia. So we have that key change there. Are you going to answer me, Lord? A mini fanfare. And then we quieten down for this treatment of Aurelia. And this is where you'll see how I've stylistically set it apart from Night of the World. Am I doing okay for time? Yes, and uh, we we will, uh, just to our listeners as well, we will be uh, listening to this piece in a minute in, in, in its entirety, so you'll be able to yeah. hear these in action. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as we get to Aurelia then, uh, letter D, non-staccato, it's not meant to be da, da there's nothing hard about it. It's almost like um, the bowing on a cello. It's, it's, it's minimal, thinly scored, not hymn-like. Because obviously, you know, Life of the World is much more hymn-like in its arrangement, much more four-part chorale type arranging. So here is something that's minimal, that's modern. The trombones carry that little four-note motif right in the middle of it, just to sew everything together. And um, we also have, if you've noticed, a constant bass note here. Uh, the bass line does not change uh, for those first eight bars or so. 
And that means that the chords take on almost a strangeness, uh, an unfamiliar kind of structure because the bass is always always rooted in the same place. So for those first few bars, not like Light of the World, broad, unhymn like thinly scored. And then suddenly I change and I do that because I originally wrote D section all in that modern minimalist style and it was boring. It didn't work. So halfway through, we changed to a five part hymn arrangement, basically. Um, again, I did that in my own style. I wasn't copying anything there. There are a few bits which like, you've only got certain things to work with, haven't you? So there are bits that are similar to other arrangements of the tune, but that's basically my sort of hymn tune arrangement of it. Um, and again, we have, I, I, I chose there as well, just to go back, to use the verse that says, oh, let me hear thee speaking. Because I'm saying, what's next? I'm being healed. What's next? Let me hear thee speaking in accents clear and still, um, which ends with thou guardian of my soul, which is where we get to a few bars now before E. Um, we're ending that thou guardian of my soul. We're revisiting the, in fact, everything's happening now. We've got the four note motif. We've got the uh, answer, call and answer from the baritones and euphoniums. And we've got the little decoration that happened right at the beginning, happening again, or the same rhythm for it anyway, and building up to a fanfare. So everything's going on now as we build up towards this last section. Um, one of the verses, scripture verses, that kept on coming to me and given to me while I was ill, considering how ME causes weakness and severe fatigue, was that those that wait upon the Lord uh, will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings as eagles. And so I wanted this last verse, I'll follow you, God's only son, to soar. So it had to be higher. It had to be um, right up there, the soprano cornet, um, heading it up an octave above to really make the melody soar. And I was kind of uh, dared by a friend to, uh, to write the second row cornets in for this melody and leave the cornets for a bit later so that the cornets and the trombones could form this like a royal fanfare. So they're reserved, they're held in reserve. The, the, the back row cornets get their moment of glory. I'll follow you, God's only son, uh, along the road to the cross. And that's where we get this royal fanfare. This big moment, which sort of cuts across the, the smoothness of the texture as well again, um, which I think sort of just draws something out, extra out of it at that moment. It's triumphant. It, it speaks of the triumph of the cross and not the shame of it. Um, then... No other place can I find grace unfathomed and unflawed and another crescendo up to double forte. And here's where I made a, a real a difficult choice because I've put, as I reach the hill of Calvary and then I've diminuendoed there before building up again and see his open arms. I kind of hesitated at Calvary because I wanted to pay it respect, really. I wanted to say, actually, this isn't easy. Looking at the cross isn't easy. If you really look at it, so as I reach the hill of Calvary and see your open arms, then we see his love expressed. And that's when it, the, the crescendo comes back. And this is the big moment. And see his open arms. It's a Newto on the word see there. Uh, I'll know my name and where I'm going. Meanwhile, the, the four note motif and the little semiquavers are all still going on. Guardian of my soul. And we quieten down to section F here. And there's just a couple of bars of Aurelia just playing quietly now as, as we bring it down, um, rolling quavers again, but then they start to come to a stop and there's these little quaver rests, da, 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 da. we're sort of slowing it down. 
we're stopping that movement now and we're just resting in his presence and saying guardian of my soul at the end and again i go from chord one to chord four i play on the plagal and uh it's, that's that's kind of my voice in a way at the end there and i chose instead of putting a little ting of a triangle or something at the end as well to have the scrape because again it's otherworldliness again the scrape on the symbols have a almost like a breath at the end, guardian of my soul, on a deep bass, joining in on that last chord. Um, yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. We've got through. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Dan. We really appreciate that insight into the music and the words and, and that process in writing it. Now, I'm sure those that are listening all around the world, it's been said many times before, but we really are in some strange and unprecedented times. And I'm sure many people are feeling very isolated, uh, not having our usual church services but we just invite you for the next four minutes, we're going to listen to the piece and we invite you to just listen along, pray, reflect on the words that you see. And remember, you know, it's a scary place outside, but that Jesus is the guardian of our soul.
Let's pray, shall we? I'm going to read some words from the song, Oh Jesus, I Have Promised, a verse we don't often hear, but I think uh, really speaks to me at these times. We need to know uh, where we're going as we follow Jesus in these uh, new times, these different times. Oh, let me see thy footmarks, and in them plant my own. My hope to follow duly is in thy strength alone. Oh, guide me, call me, draw me, uphold me to the end. And then to rest receive me, my saviour and my friend. Lord, we come to you now worshipfully and humbly, knowing that even uh, in these times when we don't know what our next step might be, you have already walked the path ahead of us. You are the author, pioneer, perfecter of our faith. You are the way, the way of life we choose, the master and friend whom we follow. Lord, show us your footmarks. Show us the way to step as we navigate our way through these difficult times. Help us to get around and, and above and through all the obstacles that might uh, present themselves to us so that we might still follow you, so that we might still be faithful, so that we most importantly will still be your people spreading your good news and bringing your kingdom to bear upon the world around us. Help us, Lord, strengthen us, guide us, keep calling to us, keep drawing us to you as we, as we uh, know that you have promised to draw close to us. We just ask, Lord, for those in need of special comfort right now, that you will draw very close, noticeably close to those who need that loving attention. Lord, may we all clearly see your open arms, that wonderful metaphor of love that invites us all in so that we might know that you have called to all of us that none of us are left out of your love, that none of us can ever be separated from it because you have made certain that uh, it's available to all. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves to you and pray that the rest of our, our conversation this evening will be God-honouring, but also fun and informative, and that we will uh, be joining in fellowship across the miles with one another and also with you. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you ever so much, Dan, for the insight, the music and the prayer. Okay. Now, it's a real shame to uh, change the atmosphere, but uh, something that we do well in the Salvation Army. So we're going to switch the atmosphere up for the final segment of the podcast. Um, and I'm going to invite John back. If he's still there. Brilliant. Oh, fantastic. Oh, just doing a little study. As a mentor, I forgot to mention Dr. Ron Holtz, who is going to be my help during this next segment as we whatever this segment has in store. Well, those regular listeners to the podcast and last week's live episode will know what we're in, in store for now. And that is a segment that we like to call Band Mastermind. Frightening. So, John, you're in the hot seat. How nervous on a scale of one to Z are you feeling? I phoned a friend. His name is Philip Samuel. He's my core officer's son and all-around band geek. And he's not really on the line. I couldn't really do that. But he is my fact person. So I feel I'm about to let a lot of people down because uh, I'm not good with these pressure cooker situations. And I'm, I'm not your typical band geek. But he is... And he is under normal circumstances, usually about three feet away from me in all 
engagements both at the core and with the staff band. So I really wish he was in the office right now. I might do a little bit better. So what I'll say is my default answer will be Eric Ball. <laughs> well, let's, before we jump in and I explain the rules, let's just have a quick look at the leaderboard. And I'm going to ask you, where do you think that you're aiming for on this leaderboard? You can see we've got Andrew Blythe at the top there, Philip Cobb at the bottom. But where do you think, where would be good for you to come, John? Seventh. Seventh. Well, you know, set your standards low and avoid disappointment. Well, it <laughs> makes room for improvement, right? Absolutely. So just to remind you and those listening at home of the rules, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many uh, nerdy brass bands, some Salvation Army, some general and some general music questions <laughs> swatting up there uh, in, in that time as possible. So, John Lamb, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? No, but go ahead anyway. Okay, your time starts now. What is uh, symbol does the Canadian staff band have on their epaulets? Uh, it, the uh, it has the uh, Canadian the words the Canadian staff band. Great, I'll give you that one. Okay, who was the chief contributor to the SA Band World? Who is a chief contributor? Who is the chief contributor? I don't know what that means. I, uh, like, is, who is it? writes the most articles for it? Yes, yeah. Uh, could be Andrew Wainwright. Uh, unfortunately not. We'll move on. Who wrote the book, Play the Music, Play? No idea. Eric Ball. Okay, uh, default answer there. Unfortunately not. We'll move on though. Beginning with the letter B, what is an old-fashioned name for a tuba? B-flat bass. Uh, not quite the answer I'm looking for, I'm afraid. Before 1903, general series publications included a part for which woodwind instrument? Saxophone. Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid, but close. Oh. What does ASCAP stand for? Oh, American. It's a publication thing. I, I will, I'll mess it up if I try to say it. Okay, we'll pass Call on that. Stephen Buller. Call Stephen Buller. He would know that <laughs> better than me. If you see LC marked on a percussion part, what should you play? Loose cymbal. Correct. Who was the first Salvation Army composer to score for Bell's or Glockenspiel? Your time's up there, but I'll let you answer that question. Uh, could be Ray Stedman Allen? Unfortunately not. You should have gone with your stock answer. It was, in fact, Eric Paul. It was. So, so close. So just to go through, uh, the questions didn't quite get correct. Now, I believe the symbol I was looking for on the Canadian staff band efforts, you'll probably know more than me, and these are random questions yeah. that just came up. But is it the maple leaf? Right there. Uh, well, I'm going to take that one back off you, I'm afraid. I said in the quiz that you got it right, but I, I thought you'd know. <laughs> disappointed. No, I'm not angry, just disappointed. That's okay, <laughs> I can accept that. Okay, the chief contributor to SA Bandworld is Simon Gash, and it was Brindley Boone that wrote the book, Play the Music Play, one of the only ones that you weren't swatting up with. Uh, and the sad thing is, I think I have it here in my, in my library, so I, yeah, I, I brought over the wrong books here. <laughs> the pressure does strange things to you. Um, so, beginning with the letter B, an old-fashioned name for a tuba is a bombardon, or bombardon, I'm not 100% sure of the pronunciation, I'm sure someone will correct me. And before 1903, general series publications included a part for clarinets in E-flat and B-flat. Yeah. 
goodness, I don't anymore. <laughs> I think it's, I've seen old pictures of Salvation Army bands that include the saxophones. They absolutely they do, but I don't think... It raises they, more questions than it answers. Maybe, it certainly does. And uh, finally, the initials ASCAP stand for the American Society of Composers, Authors, yeah. Publishers. So that gives you a total of... Um, just counting. Place. Uh, well, I think you joint sixth with one point. Could have been worse. Could have got zero. Yeah. A selection of tricky questions there. But yeah. uh, a good try. And doing it live, I think, adds another level of pressure. So on the leaderboard, we'll put a little Z for Zoom next to your name just to make you feel a little bit better about it. <laughs> hey, no problem. I, I have no shame here. I live in the moment. Fantastic. So thank you once again, John, for joining us. And I'd like to thank Darren as well for joining us. It's been fantastic to have you both on the podcast and to hear from you and learn from you and, and your insights. It's been a real pleasure for me to speak to you. So I wish you all the best in the next few weeks, months and years coming. So all that leaves me to say is good night and God bless. Good night.